When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. Today, from London, I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Not much is certain about what goes on inside North Korea, but reports suggest that grinding poverty is widespread. What's crystal clear is that the country splashes out in a big way on snazzy rockets. We investigate how all those weapons are paid for. And for decades, a rambling English country house was the site of a tiny BBC department that translated the world's radio broadcasts, often learning the news before it was news. As that estate is sold off, we look at the history of BBC monitoring. First up, though. Today's Bangladesh is almost unrecognizable when compared with the country of a half-century ago. Newly independent, but scarred by poverty and battered by natural disasters. Food shortages are a thing of the past. Child mortality rates are better than the global average. Female literacy has nearly doubled in recent years. Shelters and early warning systems protect the country from the ravages of cyclones. Prime Minister Sheikh Hasina has been all too happy to take credit for Bangladesh's remarkable progress. But clouds are gathering over this sunny development story. Foreign currency reserves have run down and graft is rampant. The streets of Dhaka, the capital, are lined with thousands of the homeless as a cost-of-living crisis plays out and protests are growing. Bangladesh's economic miracle is in grave danger. On the face of things, there's a lot of good news, and certainly the government makes hay out of much of what's been accomplished. Dominic Ziegler writes Banyan, our column on Asian affairs. For instance, last year, a huge road and rail bridge was opened across the Padma River, which is the main tributary of the mighty Ganges in Bangladesh. And that's really going to open up what has been quite an isolated part of the country, Western Bangladesh. In Dhaka, the traffic is satanic in its congestion, but new expressways are being put up and Japan is helping build and finance an elevated metro system. So that's all to the good. The infrastructure is badly needed in Bangladesh, which has plenty of bottlenecks as growth has in recent years been fast. But in private, there's a lot of concern, and it's expressed by foreign diplomats, by analysts, and even by the more thoughtful members of the ruling Awami League party. They express doubts and even concerns about the direction the country is going in. Why is that? Things sound like they have been and remain on the up. Things have been on the up. And in recent years, at least until the pandemic, the Bangladeshi economy was growing very fast at over 6%, faster even than China. 
things have taken a lurch since then. And the pandemic, as well as Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine, have had an effect. And now there are wobbles in the balance of payments. A second issue is to do with the dominance of what has been by far the most successful export sector in Bangladesh, producing ready-made garments. But overarching everything is a third concern, and that has to do with the country's governance itself. So let's take those in turn. What do you mean about wobbles in the balance of payments? Well, Russia's invasion of Ukraine last year has pushed up the costs of food and fuel and fertilizer, all of the things that Bangladesh has to import. That's been one reason why there's been quite a steep fall in Bangladesh's foreign currency reserves. They're probably now below 30 billion. The balance of payments crisis in Bangladesh is not nearly as severe as the ones in Pakistan or Sri Lanka, but still, the government's called in the IMF, and in January, a $4.7 billion loan was agreed. Part of that has already been dispersed. It's helped, but it hasn't turned things around. The local currency is still wobbly, and exporters in particular are still struggling. They need imports. They're also struggling to get the kind of hard currency that they need to back letters of credit, and letters of credit are really essential for exporters to do trade. And moving on to the problems with the garment industry, which is really a large part of what has put Bangladesh in the position it's in today, right? Yeah, that's right. Bangladesh relies heavily on this sector, which accounts for about four-fifths of all export earnings and about a tenth or more of GDP. Margins are shrinking uh, in the textile sector. And some of the tariff exemptions that Bangladesh enjoys in Western markets Well, they'll go after 2026 when Bangladesh is due to graduate from least developed country status. And at that point, you know, Bangladesh may find that its gardens are being priced out of world markets at the same time that other low-wage or more low-wage economies start to provide fierce competition. There's no obvious export sector to take the garments place. It's certainly true that domestically, the pharmaceuticals industry and electronics and a couple of others have done quite well. But they haven't succeeded in really setting up a powerful export force. And that's partly because Bangladesh is a member of no major regional trade pact. It hasn't been able to attract sectors moving out of China. And it's also a question of governance. The EIU, which is a sister company of The Economist, ranks Bangladesh's business environment as 15th out of 17 Asian countries. Well, tell me more about that. You said that is the overarching concern here. Well, it is. Uh, And governance is a broad term. But there's no doubt that, for instance, corruption touches nearly every corner of the country's affairs. If you want to get a job in a successful company, if you want to join the Coast Guard, if you want to apply to be a primary school teacher, well, first of all, you have to bribe somebody to get those posts. The same applies to getting a business contract. The second area is that you actually have to have good political connections. In effect, Sheikh Hasina has, over her years in power since 2009, attempted to instill a one-party state. In that state, she demands intense loyalty. And to reward that loyalty, the ruling Awami League has a powerful system of patronage. That means that business and politics are far from separate. They're wholly intermingled. That can be felt in various areas. So as regards governance in the general sense, you would put that specifically then at the feet of Sheikh Hasina? I would. Democracy in Bangladesh has never been fragrant. And one of the arguments that Sheikh Hasina 
has made is that strong leadership from the top is required for Bangladesh's development, or else there would be turmoil. In effect, she's echoing the attempts of her late father, Sheikh Mujibur Rahman. He is Bangladesh's founding independence hero, but he and much of Sheikh Hasina's family were assassinated in 1975, after Sheikh Mujib himself had tried to, in effect, instill a one-party state. So although she doesn't say so, I believe she has a strong sense of inheriting that legacy. She certainly promotes a powerful personality cult around her father and around herself. I sense that she too believes that a powerful authoritarian party in power is what holds the country together. I also believe she's wrong. And you expect then that Sheikh Hasina will stay in power then? The outcome of the election at the end of this year is certainly if Sheikh Hasina has her way not in question. She has, after all, done her best to destroy the opposition. The press is not free and her critics have been silenced. Even so, the opposition, Bangladesh National Party, and other opposition groups have certainly surprised me in their strength and vociferousness in recent weeks. And they've taken to the streets uh, and they've attracted large numbers in protests in the capital. I don't believe that the opposition is powerful enough to win. And after all, Sheikh Hasina's party controls the ballot boxes. But it does raise the spectre of strife and of bloody violence. And the risks are rising of rival goons wreaking havoc on the streets and deepening political divisions. So the problems with governance seem sort of fixed in place for a while, at least. The market for garments is perhaps going to squeeze Bangladesh out a bit in coming years. This balance of payments problem that you mentioned doesn't sound like it's going to be easily resolved. All of these problems, do you think, are set to get worse, or is there a ray of sunshine here? If there's a ray of sunshine, it's the energies and the optimism of Bangladeshi people. The one thing they talk about is political change. They talk about this in private. Ordinary people, even people within the establishment and even within the ruling party, they understand that the country needs to change, that the state's institutions need to be strengthened and made independent. And so uh, to me, the heartening thing in Dhaka is that this conversation is already underway. It's just a shame that Sheikh Hasina is not part of it. Thanks very much for joining us, Dominic. Thank you, Jason. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. You know who just loves missiles? Kim Jong-un. North Korea's supreme leader likes to see them go up. And to be seen seeing them go up. Most recently, it was an intercontinental ballistic missile fired eastwards into the sea on February 18th. 
it's another period of frequent fireworks from North Korea. But it makes you wonder, how does the country afford it all? As a result of years of economic mismanagement, suppression of market activity, sanctions imposed by the outside world, and a variety of other factors, North Korea is a country that is essentially so poor that it's unable to feed its people. Andrew Knox is The Economist's Korea's correspondent. Despite all of that, it manages to send up enormous numbers of missiles into the air. In fact, last year it sent up more than 95 missiles, which is a record for them. And they've found some really innovative ways of funding these weapons programs over the years. They've forged currency. They used to make these $100 bills that were so good they could pass all but the most discerning of eyes. They've committed insurance fraud on sort of quite wide scales and... They've been heavily involved in arms sales and even manufacturing and selling drugs. More recently, they've found a novel revenue stream. The last few years, they've been engaged in stealing cryptocurrency. So how far have they got with the new pursuit of of stealing crypto? Well, so they've been building year on year, stealing more and more. And last year, according to a report by Chainalysis, which is a data firm based in New York, they stole an incredible $1.7 billion worth of cryptocurrency. Last year in March, in one specific hack where they targeted a cross-chain bridge, which is a protocol that allows you essentially to move cryptocurrency or really move value from one type of currency on one blockchain to another. And this particular cross chain bridge was associated with an online game called Axie Infinity. In this one single hack, they managed to steal cryptocurrency that at the time of discovery was worth more than 600 million US dollars, which was the second largest crypto theft that there's ever been. So you say this is in a sense just sort of moving value around. I mean, how do you turn all of that moved value into into missiles programs? Actually, nicking the cryptocurrency is really just the first step. Once you've done that, you need to launder it, and then you need to turn it either into hard cash or into some other way of funding your activities. So in order to launder this money, hackers will distribute it across enormous numbers of wallets. They'll move it from different types of cryptocurrency into others using these cross-chain bridges. They'll also use tools called mixers, where essentially lots of different actors all put their crypto into a combined pool. All this crypto from different sources gets sloshed about, and eventually they can withdraw it to a different wallet, therefore sort of obscuring where it's come from because it's been mixed in with everyone else's. And then once they've got enough confidence that they've obscured the origins of these funds, they will try and convert this money into fiat currency, into normal hard cash. And there are two main ways that they're able to do this, one of which is finding a broker who is willing to take the crypto off their hands and exchange it for cash or something that resembles it. So interestingly, in a case that uh, was heard in the D.C. courts in the last couple of years, two Chinese nationals were alleged to have acted as brokers for the North Koreans. They were turning crypto into cash, but also, interestingly, into iTunes gift cards. Often the problem with brokers is fundamentally that 
they're just not liquid enough to deal with hacks of the magnitude that the North Koreans have been doing. So often they go to centralized exchanges, which are much more liquid. Once they've done this, they have a number of established procurement channels that are longstanding, and these often run through front companies in countries across the world, or even often through North Korean embassies and consulates. So as the North Koreans shift their focus and scoop up giant sums of money this way, what's being done to to stop them? America has blacklisted a number of crypto wallets that have been associated with North Korean hackers. And in May of last year, it issued sanctions for Blender.io, which is one of these cryptocurrency mixers. And that's the first time that a mixer had ever been sanctioned. Blender was used in the Axie Infinity hack. They also later sanctioned a much larger uh, mixer called Tornado Cash. They're really, you know, going for it. And they've had some success. American investigators recovered what was at the time worth $30 million worth of cryptocurrency from that Axie Infinity hack. And then just recently, on February 16th, Norwegian authorities seized another $5.8 million or so. That's not to say that more couldn't be done. I mean, it's still early days, but even more than efforts that countries could take. There's something way more basic. And experts told me that most hacks begin with pretty unsophisticated phishing attacks and really just better training, better cyber hygiene would make people more aware that these phishing attacks are going on and more guarded against them. So you're talking about what governments and, and regulators could do. Have have the companies involved in, in crypto themselves been uh, part of the solution at all? Absolutely. Many of the companies that are involved in the crypto industry, and especially the sort of the licit side, are really key not to have this kind of activity going on. One thing we saw really recently on February 14th is two centralized exchanges, Binance and Huobi, acted on a tip from a crypto analytics firm about a hack associated with North Korea, and they froze $1.4 million worth of cryptocurrency. That said... Hackers are also noting that the enforcement activity against them is getting more sophisticated. It's a bit of a game of whack-a-mole, frankly. You know, they try one thing, then investigators cotton on to it, but by then they've already moved on to something else. And as these two sides sort of continue to scrap it out, you got to really hope that the uh, investigators are able to get the upper hand because the stakes are pretty high here, even if... North Korea manages to get away with 1% of the headline number they stole, that's still a huge amount of money. And the last thing that the world really needs is North Korea getting more money to put towards its weapons programs. Andrew, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It looks like where a Jane Austen hero should live. It's absolutely beautiful. Golden stone Victorian country house with pillars and walkways and a lake and gardens. Catherine Nixie is a Britain correspondent for The Economist. And it was home to a slightly less thrilling sounding organisation called BBC Monitoring, which is a BBC service that for best part of a century listened in on the world. It eavesdropped on the airwaves and it listened into radio from Russia and Cold War states and actually all across the world. 
So most people associate the BBC with broadcasting, with talking. How did they come to have a bit that was dedicated only to listening? Well, it was a bit slow to get off the ground in Britain. Other countries were doing it first. Italy was doing it long before we were. And then the British in about 1939, they set up a government-led department in which they were going to listen to the airwaves. But it wasn't exactly that high-powered. There were three people in a room, and one of the first things that one of them did was teach the other one to make tea properly. And then it got going much more rapidly as the Second World War started because they suddenly realized that this was really important. And so by the start of the Second World War, it was the BBC who had taken it over. And then a little bit later, they took up residence in Caversham Park, which is this posh country house in Berkshire. And it turned up there, bringing with it radios and receivers, typewriters, daddy printers. And there were numerous refugees from Nazi-occupied Europe who came to act as monitors and whose language skills were far superior to the British who tended to mistranslate everything. And then it got going, building a Babel, basically, by Lake in Berkshire, and then they started translating it. And so at that time, the, the primary concern was what was going on in countries at war. Yes, exactly. And it's not a very glamorous thing, just sitting with a pair of headphones on and listening to the radio. And so it's something I think that people didn't think about at first, that so they preferred to use sort of spies and secret agents and manly daring do and tradecraft and all of that kind of stuff. And then they realized that actually an easier way was just to switch on the radio and listen and other countries just tell you exactly what's going on or not exactly, but give you a rough idea of what's going on in them. I mean, it's not the kind of thing that people write thrillers about, but it really matters. And it was very important. Joseph Goebbels recorded in his diary that he was absolutely convinced that there was a spy in his department. And just turned out that they'd completely forgotten that they were broadcasting their plans every morning over the airwaves. And so presumably that the value of those kinds of just throwaway transmissions lasted beyond the Second World War. Yes, absolutely. This was still going for decades. And some of the scoops of the century came from it. So you've got Khrushchev's Cuban climb down came from this. They retreat to Moscow. Russian ships steam out from Cuban ports with their decks loaded with missiles. The Soviets are withdrawing under pressure from the New World. And there were other scoops as well. So there was the first reports of the Chernobyl disaster were heard in Caversham. They were a bit confused. I spoke to one of the people who was there on the day and they had to look up where Chernobyl was. It was not a place anyone had heard of. And it was a power plant at first that, that was reported, not a nuclear power plant. And then also the proclamation of the fatwa against Salman Rushdie. But the Iran issue has pushed these issues into the background. Several European nations have already reacted strongly to the Ayatollah's threat. I interviewed the man who was there when that came out as well. And I mean, it's hard to remember now, but people didn't know what the word fatwa was. So his Varsity translator came in, gave him a piece of paper on which it said there's been a fatwa issued against Salman Rushdie. And he describes saying, great, great. And then as the person was leaving the room saying, hold on, what the fuck is a fatwa? So with all that history behind it, then why is this, this lush Babel in, in Berkshire being sold off? Well, BBC monitoring has now moved, so most of them are now in London. But also, the uniqueness and some of the purpose of BBC monitoring was lost with the end of the Cold War. And also in the era of the internet, you don't need a specialist place with so many receivers and gadgets and gizmos. The important monitoring is now being done by people online, and you can do that anywhere. And Caversham Park is about to be sold and turned into swanky retirement flats. Mm, the fate of so much beautiful property in this country. Catherine, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. 
drop us a line at podcasts at economist.com or leave us a rating wherever you listen. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.